Hello everyone, it's January 18th, 2022. This week, Ben has another deep dive into James Webb, namely mirror segment deployment and hexapod actuators. What are those? Well, we'll find out. One thing that we already know is that JWST is all about precision, so let's get into how it's done and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 342 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So I went to the ISS this week. Did you? Oh, okay. Right. <laughs> Did you bring me back a t-shirt? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. They only have smelly t-shirts up there. Smelly t-shirts and very well-guarded clean t-shirts. No, I I bought a VR headset and I played um, uh, Mission ISS, which is, I mean, it's really, it's just a... Uh, reasonably low poly model of the interior and exterior of the ISS. It's got some grab and fling physics um, so that you can like grab onto handholds with your controllers and uh, toss yourself through the ISS. There's some limited interaction. Like there's a, um, if you go into the cupola, you can start a Canadarm uh, control uh, demo but it's it's really low fidelity um they start they give you a uh, a dragon module that is like already within like it's it's basically between two modules uh in the ISS it's it's way too close and they give you the cannon arm but it's in an in a position where if you move straight to the dragon um you wind up bumping the elbow into a module and and uh restarting the simulation which is really annoying because it's fun to play around with the uh, with cannon arm, but yeah, you can like grab the the dragon and dock it. I wish that they had more um, cannon arm work loaded into the sim, but yeah, it's yeah. it's really cool. The the really cool part of it is just the scale, being able to see um, like how big things are in a very intuitive way, and it's it's really entertaining. Um, I had one moment where I went on an EVA and I'm kind of zipping around the exterior. By the way, I know enough about EVAs that I could see the the paths that they normally take to get across station and oh, the cool. arrow they they have nav arrows. They want you to go down to the dragon uh, and check it out cuz they say that there's a leak uh, and then come back. And the path that they have you take is a bad path. <laughs> I don't think anybody would ever actually take that path. So the first time I did it, I was like, no, those arrows are wrong. I'm going, I'm going the right way. And it turns out, yeah, the right way has a lot more handholds. Um, but I had this moment where I, I turned on the safer and I floated out to the end of one of the saws, one of the solar arrays. Um, and I just kind of like looked back at the station with, you know, earth revolving below you in real time and, I just kind of had this nice quiet moment where I went, "Oh, this is a familiar place that I've I've never seen before," uh, and it was just kind of a a weird, a weird moment. But I mean, it was really nice. It was it was a lot of fun. So I'm watching a video as we or as you speak about this, and it it looks pretty good. Like you said, it's a low poly. Like so, you like you mean it's just not a very good resolution? Well, yeah, I guess. I mean, it's gonna be fairly low polygon because almost everything in ISS's flat surfaces. Um, I guess that's not really the issue. Some of the some of the textures are really low resolution, in a little bit of a disturbing way. Where, um, like it, it, in the the toilet in Node three, 
there are a lot of low resolution textures, but if you stick your head in there, the patch on the back of the wall, there's like a, a toilet patch, like a logo with an outhouse uh, orbiting yeah. Earth. It's really high resolution. And so when you get close to it, it looks like it's not supposed to be there because it, it just stands out from everything. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's not, it's not very high fidelity, I guess, overall. I don't, I don't know exactly what the what the issue is with the modeling but it's, it's not very high fidelity but it there aren't that many things missing you know like there there are representations even if they're you know they don't look quite right and they're not interactive like I, none i have no issue i i don't want to make it sound like i'm bad mouthing the developers or anything like they did a huge amount of work on this so what's what's cool though is that in order to navigate around right you have to grab those handholds right and you have to pull yourself through yeah well you you can you also your thumbsticks one of them will act like a jetpack but it's only forward backward left and right there's no up or down so if you use it you're definitely going to fly towards the ceiling or floor. And mm-hmm. to correct that, you have to look up and down to add a little uh, a little momentum in the Z direction. And so like that's supposed to be the easy mode and it's not easy. It's way easier to just grab things. But what's weird is you don't have to grab the handholds. If you do, you get a, a little um, metallic ringing uh, audio clip um, and you get a nice little animation where your hand actually grabs the handle, but you don't have to. You can grab literally any surface inside. But it it's it's really fun to like push yourself through the ISS. There there's a moment where it becomes intuitive, like suddenly you're just like, oh yeah, I got this. Like when your brain just accommodates to it. The third and possibly final segment of Ben's explains everything about the GWST. Um, I don't know if that's right. true, but I'm sure there's more to come. But, I'm gonna, um, I'm gonna try my darndest. <laughs> <laughs> so what do we have this week? Right. So the only JWST uh, activity right now is um, deploying the the mirror segments on on the primary mirror. Um, and it, this is this is an interesting activity. And it involves one of the mechanisms on JWST that I am most fascinated by. So all of the 18 mirror segments on the primary mirror are launched in a stowed position. So the way they do it is each mirror segment has three metal pegs on the back of it, and they mate into sockets on the back plane. Um, so you can kind of think of them as like crouching down to sit nice and solid. And so what they do is they um, extend them out. They lift them up 12 and a half millimeters um, to get those pegs to clear the sockets. Um, and then once they have them all lifted up, then they can go ahead and um, do all the focusing and, and tuning that they need to do. And maybe I can talk about the math that happens like for the optics. Um, it's like just understanding the math to the point where I can talk about it is going to be a heavy lift for me. Uh, this is really complicated math, at least when you're coming at it from the experience, the math experience that I have, it's, yeah. it starts, it's in a blind spot for me. Um, and I wish it wasn't. Um, so we'll, we'll see, <laughs> we'll see, <laughs> but getting all of these mirrors lifted up 
is a very slow process. And it's, it's really cool. Why? Basically, uh, each of these mirrors has a, a number of actuators, and I'll talk more about the actuators later. But each of these actuators uh, moves relatively slowly. But if they were to start all of the mirrors moving, start all the actuators uh, moving to their final position on all the mirrors at once. I, I think this would be, you know, under a half hour exercise. But what happens is they, uh, they have limits. First off, they only move one actuator at a time. Uh, and that's, you know, for safety as well as for uh, control simplicity. So they only move one actuator at a time and then they only move each actuator one millimeter per day. And that mostly has to do with heating, I believe. Um, so they're kind of grabbing each one of these actuators and moving them one millimeter and then checking, making sure everything's safe and then moving on to the next one. So the entire mirror, I kind of imagine it kind of wobbling and fluctuating a mm. tiny little bit and slowly drifting out to its final position. Um, okay. This activity uh, will continue until at least launch, pu launch plus 28 days, which would be next Saturday, I believe. And uh, you can go on to, I believe, where is JWST has it, as well as the JWST Deployment Explorer. Uh, I'll, uh, I'll put links in the show notes. Yeah, I'd say Jonathan McDowell has a very uh, text-based <laughs> uh, site where he's keeping track of the deployment steps. Oh, cool. So uh, on the on the Explorer, you can actually see the state of each of the mirrors. Now, they only have one measurement, the kind of like the Z-axis measurement, how high it's lifted up, uh, rather than reporting each of the actuators. But, you know, it's it's still pretty cool that you can see the numbers slowly increasing. Okay, so uh, let's talk about these actuators uh, on the mirrors. They're called the hexapod actuators. So um, my total rabbit hole for for this week, <laughs> my major rabbit hole, because let's be honest, there have been many, is the cryogenic nano actuators on the uh, main mirror hexapods. And I, actually on the secondary mirror as well, I believe it has the exact same mechanism. Um, but like the, the, the primary mirror for JWST is really cool, right? Like A, it's gorgeous. And uh, I will throw in the show notes a link to a cross-stitch pattern I ran across on Reddit this week, which, uh, you know, there's been lots of art based on the, the hexagonal mirrors at JWST, but like this cross-stitch pattern is so beautiful. Uh, I am really trying my hardest. I, I have embroidery thread upstairs. I just don't have any cross-stitch uh, fabric, and I'm really trying hard not to run up to Michaelson and buy a bunch of cross-stitch uh, materials because my eyes are already shot after work. The JWST primary mirror is not only beautiful, but it's it's kind of an inspired design. And Dennis, maybe maybe you want to talk about this. Um, but there are, you know, there there are all these mirrors, but there are only three different prescriptions. And other than the prescription, each mirror is identical to all the others. Yeah, I <laughs> I don't know much about it, but it, it seems like they maybe are emulating uh, how the Keck telescopes. Yeah. arranged because when you uh -huh. wanted to go bigger you could either make a giant monolithic piece of glass which uh you know uh 
University of Arizona is able to do underneath the football stadium. And so that's why uh, some of the telescopes had that going for them. But then the Keck uh, approaches, yeah, a lot of uh, hexa hexagonal elements that you fit together. So Dennis, Khan in the chat has a really good question. Uh, they ask, what's the curvature? Is it spherical, parabolic, or something different? Oh, <laughs> and and before we get to that, Delta V has a really good image. There was a packing slip in the shipment of the telescope or of the mirror, Delta V. Uh, it's clearly printed on an inkjet printer. It says from JSC to GSFC, Merry Christmas in alternating red and green font. That's, oh yeah, that's the AFS optic subsystem <laughs> that I was in. That's really good. Uh, so, so, uh, Dennis, what, what kind of curvature does this thing have? So JWST has, it, it's a, it's got three mirrors, primary, secondary, and tertiary. Also, actually, there's also a, a fourth mirror, uh, but it's uh, the fine steering mirror. Right, which I uh, that, that, that appears to do uh, some good correction stuff. So, yeah, the primary is elliptical and the secondary is uh, hyperbolic. And so that combination, I don't, I don't know, certainly don't know off the top of my head what that combination is. Uh, is called, uh, I don't know if it actually has a name, like the same way that, you know, a Cassegrain or a Gregorian is a yeah. particular combination of primary and secondary, uh, curvature, uh, shapes. But yeah, it's elliptical, elliptical, primary, hyperbolic, secondary, and then the tertiary looks like it's also elliptical as well. So. Oh, okay. It, oh, I thought it was flat. Okay, cool. And like, here's the thing. Each of these, uh, hexagonal mirrors is able to actuate. It, it has, I think it's full, Full nined off freedom, uh, well, degrees of freedom. I mean, it's, it, it's full nined off actuation because like you really don't want to miscalculate your thermal expansion somewhere and have a fixed mirror that suddenly is, is out of focus, right? So each, each one can move left, right, up, down, forward, backward, rotate. And then there's an additional uh, degree of freedom where it can alter its curvature. It's just incredible. Um, and like, there are some really good, um, like heat map looking things of if you use just the, just like sixth off correction or like the full correction, like how, how bad the astigmatism is and, you know, how good this thing can focus. And it, it's really cool to see, you know, these waves of colors across the mirrors in partial correction modes. And then the whole mirror just being like one solid color with slightly different, you know, variations in each mirror. Uh, once you can correct for the uh, radius of curvature, it's, it's really cool, but each one of these mirrors, the mechanisms are identical. Um, and so there are a huge number of repeated components. And the one that I wanted to focus on is called the hexapod actuator. Each mirror actually has seven of them. There are three arms on this hexapod and each one has two actuators that are at an angle. And so, um, you form, what's it called? A Stewart platform, I think, where if you push and pull, if you set each of these actuators to a different position, you affect different types of motion and you kind of have to use them all in concert to get, you know, to isolate one axis. Uh, it's, it's really cool. And then the, so that's six, right? Two pairs or th uh, three pairs of two. And then there's a third one in the middle, um, that pushes up. Uh, so it, it spreads 
the center of the mirror from these these ties uh, that run out to the outside perimeter, each of the corners. And uh, by changing by changing that one in the middle, you can pull on the on the corners of the hexagon uh, and change the uh, the radius of curvature. So right, so you've got uh, 18 mirrors, and each mirror has seven of these actuators. And so my question was like, how in the world do these actuators work? Um, because they have to be so incredibly precise, but they also have to have a huge range of motion. Um, and like, where where are the numbers? It's uh, it's really really incredible. The course adjustment range is greater. The the requirement was to be greater than two millimeters. The the actual capability realized was twenty one millimeters. Uh, that's like the length of one of my fingernails, right? I got about I got about two centimeter. Oh no no no, that's that's double the length of one of my fingernails. Um, like this this is a huge amount of motion when you compare it to the fine the fine control the step size for fine control is 7.7 nanometers and the fine repeatability is 2 nanometers uh what <laughs> right like the range between 2 nanometers of repeatability and 21 millimeters of total travel is mind boggling and let me boggle your mind further there is not a fine control motor and a coarse control motor they are the same motor that controls both uh both types of adjustment like it it doesn't make any sense that somebody could put this out as a requirement and then go yeah let me take an afternoon and come up with an idea <laughs> i mean like obviously it this was not invented over an afternoon. It certainly wasn't designed over an afternoon, but um, as complex and uh, high performance as a system is, it, it really turns out to be quite a simple system. So let's start out by talking about the fine control motion. The concept here is, is actually really simple. Think about a car jack. Um, a car jack is shaped like a diamond. And if you pull the the outer corners towards each other, the upper and lower corners move apart, right? This is a, a four leg fixed linkage or four arm fixed linkage. Um, and so you have a, a crossbar. Well, it's, it's actually a, a three arm fixed linkage, but you duplicate two of the arms. So the crossbar that's normally a threaded rod that's connected to the crank that'll make your arm sore. That's one leg. And then the top of the pyramid, those two are the second and third. And so you bring the bottom of the pyramid, you make the bottom of the pyramid smaller and the pyramid gets taller. Now, in this case, um, instead of, uh, using pinned hinges like in a car jack they actually used a compliant structure um so it's it's bits of metal that are thinned at the corner so that it can bend which like already compliant structures are really cool and, and it's really cool they used one here but then in addition to that instead of using like a diamond or a, a triangle shape they used a trapezoid so um you've got a narrow like a short top side that's connected to the mirror and a long bottom side that changes length it's it's the cross arm and by the 
with by changing the length of the bottom side, you change the angle of the two vertical sides, and so you change the height. Um, now, the key here is instead of using a threaded rod um, to change the, the width of the bottom of this fixed linkage, um, instead they use another compliant mechanism uh, for the crossbeam. So the crossbeam actually bends up and down uh, in its middle. So it's almost like it's two arms connected in the middle. And so by moving this, the middle portion of this crossbeam up and down, you can change its length very slightly, right? And so mm. it, it's almost like a set of gears where like each step slows the rotation, but increases the force. So here you, you reduce, uh, the first step of reduction is Actually, it's actually a second step of reduction, but like by bending this, this, uh, compliant structure cross beam up and down, uh, a big motion in the up and down will result in a small motion, uh, extending side to side. And then you have the two arms that go up to the, the top part that's connected to the mirror. And by changing the angle of those very slightly, you change, or by changing the angle, uh, of those vertical legs a lot, you change the height of the entire structure a very tiny amount. And so that's, that's two stages of reduction. Uh, real quick, the entire structure isn't shaped like a trapezoid. It's shaped like a capital letter A. So it's a trapezoid with two legs going down, um, which allows this whole compliant structure to flex around a lot. And so it, the reason I want to talk about that is because the position of the stepper motor um, is actually between the legs of the capital A. And so the stepper motor, it, it's, it's a very standard, uh, 15 degree per step stepper motor, and it's connected to a camshaft. And the camshaft, it, it's an eccentric cam, uh, and so that basically means a circle that's off center slightly. So as you rotate this, the shaft, the cam moves around. Importantly, it moves up and down in a sinusoidal, fashion. Um, but it, it's, this is a repeated motion. So you can spin this camshaft infinitely and the end effect will be, um, the top beam of this trapezoid moving up and down over and over and over. And you can just keep spinning that camshaft and it'll just go up and down, up and down, up and down quite happily. So this mechanism will never bottom out if, if, uh, if that helps you think about that or if it, if it helps you start thinking about what the next step might be. Right. So the, the camshaft that has this eccentric cam, uh, is attached to the stepper motor with like a, a gear, uh, which, you know, steps down its motion. Um, and of course the, the stepper motor is a gear motor. So it's got additional gears inside of it. So this camshaft is directly connected to the gear. And then the camshaft is also connected to a bevel gear, um, which eventually makes its way down to uh, a threaded rod which allows for the course uh, correction, um, so the, the big movements. And what's really, really clever is that between the stepper and the threaded rod is a tumbler. Uh, it's called a tumbler coupling. So uh, if you're familiar with a tumbler lock, it's the exact same thing. If not, think about two discs that uh, rotate coaxially, right? So they're, they're, they might as well be on the same shaft, but the two discs have two pins. So the driven end can rotate nearly, uh, nearly 360 degrees before it engages with the, 
with the other disc, the pin on the other disc. And so the way all of this works, long story short, is the stepper motor will rotate until the tumblers engage and then rotate as far as it needs to to drive the course uh, the course adjustment threaded rod and then it can back away and it can back up almost 360 degrees and in doing that it drives it, it drives the fine adjustment so to do all of this you have to drive the motor in multiple directions um, but you can do all of this adjustment with one motor. Um, and like, this is one of the coolest, uh, mechanisms I've, maybe not the coolest mechanism, mechanism I've ever seen, but certainly the coolest mechanism I have seen in the last like three years. Uh, it, it's really, really fantastic. Um, there are a couple of details. The, uh, the threaded rod, um, because it's under pressure, it's going to, back drive this whole mechanism if it was directly connected to the motor that's not a problem you just you know have the motor hold in a position but since the motor basically decouples itself from the from the threaded rod um you, they had to apply uh, a little friction brake to hold the the threaded rod in place so the friction brake is basically uh vespal buttons vespal is a type of plastic uh, that are that are pushed into the side of the very large screw that the the ball screw is attached to. The, but I keep saying threaded rod. It's really a, a ball screw and a ball nut. But uh, I I kind of went down a, a fun little rabbit hole uh, when I was trying to figure out what Vespal was because I didn't know that it was the name of a plastic. Uh, I wound up uh, in the personal like the user folder of somebody at MIT uh, who was working on a, a tokamak reactor. And, uh, we have, uh, cor a correction burn about nuclear power later on in the show. And, uh, we've had lots of people disagree with me that the, uh, the backronym for scram that involves Axeman, I think it's really bad. A lot of people don't think it's quite as bad as I do. <laughs> so like I kind of landed on this, on this reactor Wikipedia page. And I'm just like, Oh, yeah, it all it all comes back to nuclear power, doesn't it? I can't get away from it. There's no escape. Yeah, there really isn't. So there'll be a, a diagram in the show notes that shows all of these different parts um, in, in a very nice sort of like block diagram kind of way. And uh, I really want to 3D print uh, a version of this because pretty much all of the specs are available uh, in this in this paper that'll be linked in the show notes. Um I mean, it's, it's not like we don't have, you know, dimensional, uh, drawings, but, you know, we have gear ratios and, and really good photos from multiple angles. And like, this is something that could totally be 3D, you know, modeled and 3D printed by a complete amateur. And I, I really wish I had a bunch of extra time to go do it because this would be a really fun mechanism to have sitting on your desk. All right. If that, uh, explanation of, of this actuator, uh, wasn't, boring enough. Let me give you a, a maybe a more uh, accessible little tidbit. All of the parts involved here are incredibly high precision. And so they were uh, manufactured using EDM, not electronic dance music, but electro discharge machining. So Ben Krasnow, uh, he's uh, applied science on YouTube has a really good uh, video or two about uh, uh, an EDM setup that he built. Um, it's, it's so good. Uh, EDM is a really 
uh, exciting machining process. But um, all of these super high precision parts were manufactured using EDM. And one of the downsides of EDM is that it can leave a recast layer on the surface of parts, depending on, I believe, depending on what type of material you're using. Uh, in this case, it was it was sort of an unavoidable thing, but it's not that big of a deal. You just use chemical etching to just pull the, the recast layer off. And by doing that chemical etching, you increase the fatigue life of these parts by up to 10 times. Like this is a this is a huge benefit. But one part in particular in the in the paper I was reading, the warden paper, one of the parts, they didn't name which one, wound up having a very thick recast layer. And so they did they're etching and they etched and they etched and they etched until they finally got rid of this recast layer. And when, when they were done, the part was just way too thin to be usable. It just was this, you know, this, uh, uh, titanium foil kind of part. Um, and they're like, why the heck is this one part giving us trouble? And it turns out that it was as simple as a vendor misunderstanding the EDM process that they wanted them to do. And so they had to rewrite their procedures. Um, but they, they got it done. Uh, they re remade the part and it, and it works just fine. Um, and like those little tidbits, I don't know. They're not like world changing, not world shaking, but like, it just makes me feel really happy to know, Hey, there was a part in this, in this machine that somebody screwed up. Like I, I need to just, I don't know. I feel like I need to forgive myself for screwing up, for making dumb mistakes more often, because if somebody working on JWST of all things can, can make a mistake uh, <laughs> that results in a completely unusable part. So can I. Not, not for nothing though, but part of the delay is that the project <laughs> did have some mistakes on the way, right? I think they tore, they tore a sun shield at some point. Things were getting yeah messed up a little bit. That, that set us back a couple of years, right? I mean, that, that that's fair. But your, your, mistakes, your point still stands. I, I, I don't mean to contrast your, that. With no, you're, it's, it's a good point. Like your mistakes aren't free of consequence, but you also can push through those consequences. You know, JWST mm. is flying. I liked people celebrating on Twitter that it's now TRL9. Ooh, okay. Mm. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a fun I'll, thing to think about. Something that, you know, yeah. it's been an idea and a concept and then a piece of hardware for so yeah. long. And now it's... It, it actually, <laughs> it's got real world proof. All right. Um, so in the show notes, there's a very colorful 3D render of this entire actuator pair from the end that connects to the hexapod frame all the way through to the end that connects to the mirror. And uh, when you look at this very colorful image, the A-frame, the, the compliant mechanism, is in yellow at the bottom. Uh, and the stepper motors are the two gray cylinders that cross in the middle. Um, and then the, the tumbler bracket is the like two square bits, um, that, uh, that are off to one side. It's really cool. The way that they built this thing allows for some, some really cool properties. First off, there are lots of very long, long leg brackets that the, the biggest ones that mount this actuator to the hexapod frame uh, are called athermalization brackets. And I believe you see this, this shape over and over long bits of metal. And I think they're all basically uh, to make heat take as long of a path as it possibly can before it heats the mirror up. And then the other really cool thing is that they designed this, you know, 
fairly complex, chunky mechanism so that they can put two of them next to each other, rotated by 180 degrees, and they fit together in a very neat and tidy package. It's really, really pleasing and nice once you can look at this diagram and go, oh, I, you know, I kind of get what every piece here is. I, I, I think I get it. Um, and I think that's why I want to 3D print it so darn badly. So looking forward to the future, there's only one major event left. Um, in terms of uh, getting the vehicle out to where it's supposed to be. And that's the L2 insertion burn. Uh, that's L plus 29 days. So the mirror should be done uh, L plus 28. Uh, and then the next day, the, the day after that, they'll be doing the insertion. If there's anything that goes wrong or delays the mirror deployment, um, I'm sure they can just put it on hold. Like that's part of the beauty of of going slow and steady. Uh, but yeah, L2 insertion should happen next Sunday. Um, and then after that, they'll perhaps have to do uh, mirror deployment cleanup. And then I, I don't know what they have to do to, before they get like the real first light image. Um, but I imagine that they're going to do some uh, tuning of the mirrors and then do like a, a really bad observation and then fine tune those mirrors. Um, and then who knows when the, the first science is actually going to be done here. Uh, Jonathan McDowell's website actually has uh, better, uh, better granularity. Um, they'll activate KA band comms on 25 plus uh, 25.3, which is right before uh, the insertion burn. I'll, right after the insertion burn, they'll do, uh, they'll start their cool down. Obviously they've been cooling down this entire time, but they'll really be pushing towards their, their final temperatures. Uh, mirror alignment will begin at L plus 36 days and mirror alignment and telescope commissioning are kind of, uh, commensurate. They kind of work at the same time. Instrument activation will also happen at plus 36 days. Segment level wavefront control will happen at L plus 45 days ish. And that's the beginning of the math that starts to get, uh, ahead of me. Then they'll do, um, uh, fine tuning tests for the FGS. Uh, their first station keeping burn, uh, is planned for, uh, L plus 50 days. Uh, we'll, we'll see if they do that at 50 days or a little before, a little later. Cryo cooler activation for Miri begins at plus 77 days. Uh, mirror alignment should be complete at L plus 124 days. Instrument calibration will kind of happen around then at L plus 20 days. The cycle one observation should begin at L plus 180 days. And the first images should be released uh, between 180 and 210 uh, days. So we'll, we'll, we, we've got a long time before we start seeing images uh, from, from uh, James Webb, but like, it's, uh, it's pretty cool. Yeah. Chris in the chat says uh, six months post full deployment is when they're going to start returning science. And yeah, it's about 180 days. So there you go. Uh, but uh, 180 days would be six months, I believe. And then uh, that's from launch, not even from full deployment. So I, I don't know, maybe, maybe it'll be a little after that. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll see. It's, it's a range and they don't even know yet. They've got so many steps before they're even uh, ready to start coming up with, uh, with hard estimates. So that that's the future JWST. Uh, my, my hope, my plan is to continue to kind of do little uh, spotlights on different mechanisms that at least interest me. We'll, we'll see if you've got something mechanical. 
uh, hopefully that that you want to know about, shoot me a question. Maybe I can uh, maybe I can get some answers. Uh, like I've said before, there are such great uh, articles out there that that we can actually get some really good granular things to imagine about about James Webb. Uh, it's, it's really pleasing to me. So this aesthetically pleasing that we can do that. All right. So to wrap up, uh, my exhaustive and perhaps exhausting coverage of JWST this week, um, a new estimate was put out, uh, on the operational life of JWST, right? It all comes down to how much fuel they have because it's passively cooled. So we don't have to worry about cooling. And, uh, at this point, the current estimate is that they have 20 years worth of propellant. Wow. No cheering. Okay. No cheering. Okay. Tw- <laughs> Yay. Okay. <laughs> oh, sorry. I was I was typing in uh, Discord. But yeah, oh. right. We we knew it was significant, but significant was a factor of two. <laughs> okay. So this week, let's do uh, four short and sweets. Why not? All right, Dennis. What's the first one? First up, Chang'e Five identifies water on the moon. While water has been detected on the moon before, with the first confirmation coming from ISRO's Chandrayaan-1 mission in 2009, the Chinese sample return mission Chang'e 5 was the first to identify water at its landing site in real time. Researchers used the spacecraft's lunar mineralogical spectrometer to identify water's spectral signature at 2.85 microns, with concentrations ranging from 120 to 180 parts per million. The results are free to read as an open access article in Science Advances. Next up. Perseverance rover prepares to clear blocked sampling tube. Perseverance's seventh sampling attempt started off smoothly with a successful coring and extraction of material from a rock named Esol, but then encountered problems when transferring the sample bit to the rover's carousel for storage. Sensors indicated a higher resistance than expected as the bit was moved towards the carousel structure, a phase of the process called coring bit drop-off. Some debris from the core had fallen into the carousel, preventing a bit from seating completely. Emission engineers are planning to empty the contents of the recent sample, tube number 261, uh, and perform two rotation tests of the carousel to see how best to proceed. And next, SLS is hoping for a March launch. The engine flight controller that failed to power up ahead of a wet dress rehearsal back in December has been replaced. The issue has been replicated in the lab, but a root cause has not yet been found. The wet dress rehearsal is expected to take place now in mid-February, with the launch taking place a month or so after in mid to late March. NASA officials fully expect additional issues to be identified during the dress rehearsal, and Space News cites some industry experts as being skeptical that those issues can be resolved without additional schedule delays, but NASA is hopeful that they won't slip to the subsequent launch window. And forcefully, OrbitFab signs deal to provide on-orbit fueling for AstroScale. The partnership between the two companies will see OrbitFab's in-space refueling tankers, which they hope to see operational in 2023, provide up to 1,000 kilograms of xenon propellant for Astroscale's geostationary satellite servicing spacecraft. The Life Extension in Orbit, or LEXI spacecraft, is projected to launch in 2026 and will provide services like station keeping, attitude control, momentum management, inclination correction, and orbital relocation and retirement. OrbitFab is developing their RAFTI refueling port, which stands for Rapidly Attachable Fluid Transfer Interface, and is being offered to government and commercial operators who are interested in making their satellites compatible with OrbitFab's refueling service. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. 
questions, comments, and correction burns. And this week we have a uh, a follow up about about the mystery hut, as it's called, on the moon, yeah. which is no longer a mystery, actually. So it's yeah. more of a it's more of a factual rock, right? A factual rock. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I'll buy it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I mean, we talked about this uh, back in December, I believe, um, where U two two on the far side of the moon. Uh, saw this rock up on the horizon and, uh, they decided to go drive towards it. And the rock looks very, very rectangular. Looks like it's got nice sharp corners and, uh, it's way off in the distance. So it looks huge. And, you know, we're kind of like, yeah, it's not huge. Don't worry about it. It's, it's not rectangular. Don't worry about it. But, you know, everybody's still fascinated. Like when you see something, mysterious in a photo you you want to see another image of it you know the the face on mars kind of effect so um they drove up to it and uh andrew jones on twitter says uh oh this is amazing close to tears our space has published an update on the mystery hut and it's so underwhelming it's brilliant <laughs> Um, and basically it's it's the issue that you encounter over and over again a small object Close up is indistinguishable from a large object far away, depending on your atmospheric conditions. And on the moon, there are no atmospheric conditions. So that is always true. And yeah, it's, it's pretty small. I mean, it looks like it's probably the size of, uh, uh, two soccer balls sitting next to each other, something like that. But yeah, it's, it's, uh, a very lumpy, not interesting rock sitting on the edge of a crater. But again, it's, it's a prominence, right? It's, it's a rock sitting on the surface, uh, with a lot of smooth regolith around it. And it's just this one rock kind of sit in the middle of nowhere. And like, we'll, we'll never know this for sure. Uh, whether it came from, uh, a local ejection or a distant ejection. I mean, I guess there's not a lot of disturbance underneath it. So it can't have been that far away. Uh, but you know, maybe it was, it was cleared out when that crater was created and it actually is nice and tall and sticks into the surface. So, you know, still plenty of mystery. Like what's this, what's the story of this rock? What's its history? Um, but it, it's really cool to look at the two images, uh, from far away and relatively close and go, Oh yeah. Yeah. I can see how that would look like that from far away. It seems like it's just a, you know, a trick of light and shadow because where, mm -hmm. You, there should be the rock. You just see this, like on the left side, it looks like it has a very straight and vertical edge to it, but that's not the edge of the rock. Is I mean, as far as I can tell, that's actually just hidden in shadow. So if you could see the whole rock, you'd see that it's not really shaped like that. Yeah, it depends on it depends on what the sun angle is yeah. in the two photos. But yeah, I think you're I think you're definitely right that the vertical line is more more shadow, more Terminator than anything. All right, so moving on to this week in Spaceflight History, we have some winners. We have a correct guess by Bill Boabab, as well as some other correct guesses. They also get the bonus points. So we have Ben Howard, Psykyle, the Greek, and Leon R. The clue was uh, remove the seats, a life support system, heat shield, the parachute, but let's keep the crew rating. And uh, that is in reference to January 20th, 1978, and that is the maiden flight of the Progress spacecraft. So I guess I'll just go ahead and explain the clue really quickly here at the top. Uh, so basically, the reason why they keep the crew rating is because a Progress spacecraft is actually crew rated by its manufacturer uh, because you can enter it while on station. So while docked, you can go inside and therefore it's crewed. It's just not crewed for launch, but it's crewed for, I guess, everything else. <laughs> so it's kind of a technicality, 
but uh, that's how they classify it. So yeah, that's the explanation for the clue. The other explanation as to why you remove all that stuff is because, of course, uh, the Progress spacecraft, and I'm sure that everyone knows this, is actually derived from the Soyuz because it looks so similar. Um, and I think that that's a very common thing throughout the Russian or Soviet space program is that you take something that already exists and you just modify slightly. Um, and that is the quickest and I think probably the best way to do things very often because it totally worked and they're still using them today. So uh, I think it was a pretty good idea. But yeah, so this all came about during the development of uh, the Soyuz 6 program because uh, you need to get supplies up to that space station. And I'm sure, again, as everyone knows, you can't put much on board a Soyuz. Um, you can fit the crew in there, but just barely. There's not room for anything else, really. So how do you move supplies? Uh, so the idea was just do a Soyuz launch, but, you know, like without the crew. Um, and in order to save on mass and a whole lot of other stuff, you can take out like all that other stuff, like the parachutes, the heat shield, um, life support stuff. You can just, you know, get rid of all of that. And you can put your cargo in there instead. But even then, it's very cramped. Like, if you look at some diagrams, it's basically, there's just not a lot of room inside a progress. You just have to pack it in there. The developer of the Site 6 was a company called TSKBEM. I don't know what that stands for. I'm sure it's a big Russian word, but uh, they are now actually called RKK Energia, which is another uh, abbreviation for a rocket, some kind of rocket corporation, but that's uh, the full name of Energia. Yeah, space, Russian Space Corporation. Or sorry, Rocket Space Corporation. Yeah, so I figured maybe, but that's kind of redundant, Rocket Space. Like, I mean, I suppose not you can build rockets to do other things, but okay. <laughs> so they developed Salute, and uh, they took on the challenge of developing some means of getting cargo to that Salute, and they basically just modified the Soyuz. Um, so some very quick key differences. I just noted a couple, you know, just like the clue, they took out the life support, the parachutes, the heat shield, uh, the reentry capsule, which is a pretty big component, obviously, since that makes up, you know, like roughly one third of the Soyuz. Uh, so they take that out and, of course, they replace it with something else. And then, obviously, the progress does not separate because there's just no need to do so. That reentry module is actually replaced by a refueling module uh, because that's a big part of what uh, the progress does. Uh, lots of refueling. So the very first progress, and this is, uh, I guess, the event that we're talking about, um, that was launched on January 20th of 1978, and it was to resupply the EO-1 crew who spent 96 days aboard the Site 6. So yeah, for 96 days, you're going to need some resupplying, although I suppose, well, no, again, I don't think they could have taken up enough with them because they're in a Soyuz launch vehicle. I don't know uh, how many provisions you can cram in there. So yeah, you can kind of see how that's an issue. Yeah, that first progress just carried some scientific equipment uh, and fuel uh, for the site in order to make orbital adjustments. Um, and that's pretty much all I'm going to say about that mission because what I really wanted to talk about was uh, the actual progress vehicle itself because this is something that I probably didn't know as much about as I should because we talk about them all the time and I'm never sure, you know, like I just know that it's kind of like a Soyuz but kind of not. That's kind of how I always think about the progress. But actually to get into some more details on what makes it different. And I ca and I probably covered most of that because it's not too terribly complicated. Like, you know, the main differences are that you don't put the crew in and you take out the things that you don't need in order to keep a crew alive. Um, but there's some pretty interesting details. So there's been 
many, many, many different versions of progress, but there are, I would say, like three or four big versions or, you know, primary different versions of um, that particular spacecraft. So the first one was just called Progress, and that uh, that operated from 1978 to 1990, and that could carry 2,300 kilograms of cargo. Um, and, of course, it's the same diameter as the Soyuz, but it's, like, slightly longer at 8 meters. This only had three days of autonomous flight time, and that's because uh, it was battery-powered. It didn't have solar panels. I'm not sure why they went for that. I mean, they didn't need the solar panels. I suppose that's why, but... Um, you know, having to operate it on batteries when you could have just used the solar panels, that seems like a pretty good idea. And I believe that Soyuz, correct me if I'm wrong, did have solar panels, right? Yeah, the Soyuz T had solar panels, and that one was flying in uh, 76, as early 76. Yeah, I guess just because it wasn't necessary, um, and they could put batteries. I suppose maybe that saves on mass a little bit, um, but of course this does limit the flight time. This first version of Progress can be filled with up to 1,700 kilograms of refuse for disposal, which is what they're still used for today. So you put all your garbage in there, and then you just deorbit, um, not unlike... Pretty much like, yeah, like the Cygnus and all of the, the various cargo vehicles, you can just fill them up with garbage and then mm-hmm. deorbit them. So that was the first progress. But the next big step up was uh, the Progress M, which operated from 1989 to 2021. So I guess they just, re- I guess they just retired that, huh? And I'm sure we mentioned it and I've already forgotten. But uh, this version was actually used to resupply the Mir space station. Then it moved on to the ISS, but that's a slightly different version, which we'll get to in a second. But yeah, so back in the late 80s or the early 90s, um, this was used for the missions to Mir. And um, this was upgraded following the Soyuz T and Soyuz TM, which again, like you said, Dennis, does have the solar panels. So they did add those, which gave it a full month of autonomous flight time. So it could operate for 30 days autonomously, which is pretty cool. I mean, that still beats out, you know, the shuttle. And that's why they use the Soyuzes to this day. Um, And I guess you could use a progress, except that, you know, you can't use it for crew. But if you need it up there for a long period of time, you know, at least you can do a month. Oh, and David, if I could interject real quick, just because you pointed out the the Progress M, you know, still flying last year. Mm -hmm. Do you remember the pre-chall module that went to the station and how it had the bulbous, it was basically a modified Progress. That's why. Okay. That's why it's still fresh on our our brains. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so uh, the Progress M can dock with the forward port, and it can transfer fuel by that means. Now, the plumbing for this is all routed through the outside of the pressurized part of uh, that module that you can enter into. The reason for that, of course, is that you don't want the fuel. You don't want any any kind of a fuel leak because uh, mm-hmm. um, the fuel that it transfers is um, the most toxic stuff that there is. The UDMH <laughs> uh, in the N two O four. So you don't want hydrazine getting into your cabin or. Uh, your space station. So uh, they wrap that through the outside of uh, the vehicle. And it has a 2,600 kilogram cargo capacity, which is up by a couple hundred uh, from the previous version. And um, this one, and this is interesting, and I'm sure we have talked about it and I've somehow forgotten. I'm sure Ben remembers. I have a feeling that he mentioned this before. The VBK Reduga. So this version could actually return stuff to Earth, not the progress itself, but by a little capsule that it could eject. And the uh, Reduga, uh, which means rainbow in Russian, that can transport up to 150 kilograms 
back to Earth. And it was used just during the Mir missions, and they used it pretty frequently. Um, and I don't know how I kind of like glossed over that because I've read a whole book on Mir, and I don't remember anything about the Radugas, but... That's cool. What's cool about it is it's brought up inside the pressurized section of the vehicle. Then I'm guessing they have to move it into the space station. Then they close the hatch. Then they remove the drogue probe from the hatch. And then they put the Raduga in its place. And then it detaches from station. And that's how you get it on the outside of the spacecraft. How cool is that? That's a pretty clever idea, right? Just thinking about the logistics of how you get a capsule that you can load like without... but keeping it on the outside of the spacecraft without having to do any kind of an EVA or having it detach in any more complex way. You just stick it on the end of your hatch. I think that's pretty ingenious, actually. And I think that they have to, yeah, they probably have to bring it inside the station first because I don't think that there's enough clearance to actually close the hatch because it's a it's about a meter and a half long. So it's not very big. But basically, once the progress is down to 120 kilometers, that's when it detaches. Uh, it descends. It looks like it's a, a standard blunt body reentry, and then it um, has some parachutes uh, that deploy, and it just uh, comes down. So pretty straightforward, pretty ingenious. Uh, they lost one, I think, that didn't make it down. But other than that, they were pretty successful. So they actually use these things pretty frequently aboard Mir. Um, and yeah, I hadn't heard of that before. Um, have either of you heard of this, or am I just uh, forgetful? This is news I, to me. Yeah, I like. I'm sure I've heard of it, but I don't remember hearing it. <laughs> it's pretty cool. So yeah, that's. I don't know. I just think that's so neat. <laughs> like that's like my favorite thing about progress. Of course, they don't use them anymore. Um, this was just during Mirror, but such a cool concept, and I think that they should keep on doing it but uh, I guess there's no need to because they have down mass capabilities by other means so yeah that is progress M then the next big step up is the progress M1 which ran for just four years from 2000 to 2004 so this one is uh, more geared towards uh, the ISS missions so this carries less cargo but more of the fuel um, because you need that to keep station in orbit so it has four tanks of uh, the UDMH and then four tanks of the nitrogen tetroxide. Um, and uh, it carries up to 1,740 kilograms of it, So, which is a good number to know because I've never thought about how much actual you know, mass they're transferring to station, how much it takes to keep station in orbit. Yeah, so that's one thing about the M1 that makes it different. And then the other thing is that they replaced the analog flight control system with uh, a digital one. So that's a big upgrade. But uh, moving on to Progress MS. So this is the latest version. I forgot to put the date in here, but these are still operating. These are the newest versions. The Progress MS contains an external compartment to deploy satellites much better MMOD shielding, mostly around the cargo compartment. So in order to prevent any debris or micrometeoroids, better shielding there. And it uses the, I don't know how to say this, Luch relay satellite system. So this is just a communications constellation. Um, and this allows them uh, to stay in contact with the ground because prior to that, they had to be in direct line of sight with ground control. Huh, it's, it's Russian Tedris. Yeah, it's basically like Russian teachers, although it actually, I believe it's also used for other telecommunications. So it's a little bit more broader than Mm. that, I think. Uh, so they do like, you know, TV broadcasts and stuff like that. But yeah, pretty much the same thing. And Progress MS uses a GNSS, which is the Global Navigation Satellite System, right? That's what that stands for. We just talked about that a couple weeks ago. That's the general term for it. Yeah, right. It just uses like, yeah, so. Pretty much it just uses NavSat or like GPS, however you want to call it. So, yeah, it uses real-time relative navigation, which is pretty cool. And I think um, – when was the last time we were – 
discussing this. I don't think it was with respect to progress. It was maybe it was a dragon. We were having a pretty deep discussion about it on one of the episodes about how exactly um, a cargo craft determines its position, like, you know, like relative to station and how it switches yeah. from autonomous navigation to the station relative navigation, that kind of thing. Yeah. Ben showed a picture of like a Doppler map or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I can't remember the exact. It, event, it, but- it really depends on, on which vehicle you're talking about and honestly, which flight you're talking about because they do, um, like the, the Soyuz and Progresses use a, a radar. It's it's part of KERS. It's a little radar antenna that can uh, spot a radar beacon that's offset to one side. But yeah, there's been visual visual guidance and radar guide. I mean, it's all all over the map. It's pretty cool. And so speaking of KERS, um, the KERS A, which was what was used up until now, was replaced with KERS NA, and that um, requires only one rendezvous antenna. And I think again that was something that we had discussed. How many and how exactly this works? Um, and KERS is always fascinating and always kind of confusing to me um but uh so one rendezvous antenna so i guess a little bit simpler um it employs and i didn't look it up um that's actually one rabbit hole i didn't go down as i was uh reading up on this but uh whatever the primary differences are as far as the details as to how the curzana system works um i'm not sure but suffice to say it's definitely an upgrade um i don't know if they've had any problems with that one the curse a you know they most definitely did uh they actually was it rammed the mere space station once and we've heard about you know the various problems that they've had with that so you know having to guide something in that doesn't have a pilot that can be tricky so you're having to do it remotely and uh, oh and then i wanted to mention progress m2 which was planned for delivery of larger cargo to the international space station this would have a larger cargo module section and it would have to be launched on a zenith rocket because of how much larger it is which is a cool concept but it was abandoned due to financial issues which is like so common with anything uh, that's developed by Russia these days. It, it seems that they have all kinds of cool ideas, but then they never make it off the drawing board. But that was a pretty cool concept. So basically, you could use a progress to like deliver actual modules to station. Preach all, I guess, right? The one time it happened. So yeah, I guess they did do that. Uh, they just used more or less an existing progress, not uh, the MS version, but one that's called the M-UM, um, which is, again, just another variant but a more capable one. But I believe that that did still launch. Uh, let's take a look here. Uh, launch, yeah, that launched on a Soyuz rocket. So that did not launch on a Zenith. So mm. uh, they didn't need to upgrade the rocket. Uh, so uh, the Progress MS would have been significantly larger or at least large enough that you would you know, need to change the launch vehicle itself. Right, right. I see what you're saying. Like there's, yeah, um, Anatoly Zach's site has a nice picture of uh, it fitting snug as a bug in a Zenith. Yeah, but uh, but yeah. So that was maybe more for my own clarification than anything else. Um, a quick rundown of Progress spacecraft, just you know the basics, because uh, I had always kind of wondered a few things, and I knew, but I didn't know. So that's kind of hopefully that's a good clarification, a good primer on exactly how Progress works. Yep, and that's your this week in spaceflight history. Awesome. Thank you, David. All right. Next week is the 25th to the 31st of January. Dennis, do you have a clue for us? I do. Uh, next week in 1995, get me my briefcase. <laughs> All right. 1995. If you think you know what this clue is, uh, shoot us a tweet. Use the hashtag ThisWeekSF. And good luck, everybody. Good luck. All right. So now we can move on to upcoming spaceflight events. And we only have... 
one launch, but two other events prior to that. So, Ben, what is the first event? All right. First up is a Russian spacewalk. So this is uh, going to be taking place on Wednesday the 19th. Um, and that's uh, uh, Expedition 66. Oh, Spacewalk 51. And they're going to be outfitting the Nauka uh, uh, multi-purpose, uh, module. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know the specifics. I'm assuming they're just running a bunch of cables <laughs> like usual. Maybe they're going to be deploying an antenna or two. Um, so yeah, uh, Wednesday the 19th coverage begins at 6 a.m. The spacewalk is scheduled to begin at 7 a.m. Uh, Eastern time, obviously. And, uh, it's scheduled for seven and a half hours. We'll see how long they, uh, they stay out there. And next up, our other non-launch event is on January 21st, Friday, at 10.15 a.m. Eastern, will be coverage of the undocking of SpaceX's CRS-24 cargo ship from the station. While the coverage starts at 10.15 a.m., the undocking itself is scheduled at 10.40 a.m., again, these times in Eastern. And then finally, uh, the only launch is the launch of an Atlas V in what appears to be the very first time it's ever been in the 511 configuration, so... Uh, this mm-hmm. is a cool little precedent here. And it's launching the USS F-8, which is, a, I believe, a pair of geosynchronous satellites or a pair of satellites going into geosynchronous orbit, rather. And so it looks like that these satellites um, are going to be used uh, to contribute to timely and accurate orbital predictions. So basically helping to refine predictions about like various things in orbit, and it's supposed to uh, help avoid satellite collision, which is really neat. I've never heard of a satellite that does this. This might be the first of this kind as well, actually, which it's definitely something that's needed. And it's classified as a space situational awareness type of a satellite, which is kind of cool. I like that. Situational awareness. That's, uh, that's uh, so it's a fun term. They throw that term around all the time. It's good to see that we're actually building yeah. stuff to, to help with it. So yeah, the 511 configuration. So what? This this means it's a 5 meter diameter fairing, right? With one booster and of course the one upper stage engine. And one SRB. And most of the time it's a 411, right? So we're looking at a 4 meter fairing, but these ones are 5. I guess this means that they're very big or at least very wide satellites uh, that uh, uh, yeah, you need that larger fairing. That's pretty cool and a pretty cool payload as well. So it's launching again on the 21st at 1900 UTC through 2154 UTC from Slick 41 at Cape Canaveral. So check that out. Uh, that'll be interesting to see how it looks with a slightly larger payload fairing. I'm not sure how different it'll look, but still, it'll be kind of cool to see. It, it doesn't look that different, to be honest. Yeah, it's just one one meter difference on something that big. You're probably not going to be able to... Yeah. You know, see any huge difference. All right. And those are your upcoming spaceflight events. All right. And with that, let's deal with the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And a special shout out to Chris, a.k.a. Sty Garfield, Deathkin, Fiery Dawn, The Greek, Mike, Leon Running Man, Colin, and Delta V for joining us live in today's chat. Thank you. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us review wherever you listen or visit the orbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign affiliate links and other resources and uh, another special shout out thank you so much to ADCO level supporter Spencer Utt thank you Spencer uh, we really appreciate your contribution and for more information on this episode such as show notes and other links visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches t-shirts and hoodies you can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit we're orbital podcast on both you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. 
So that's it. We will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.